Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked into the fourth canto of Purgatorio. We're at the first 18 lines of Canto 4. This is my English language translation of the medieval Florentine. You probably know that already, but so it goes. You can find it, you know this too, on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off. You can write your notes on it if you want. You can drop comments with me and continue the conversation. Let me just remind you where we've been in Purgatorio so far. We have seen Cato on the shores. We have seen an angel arrive with a boatload of people. We have seen them get out. We have seen Dante interact with one of them, Casella, who apparently sings one of Dante's own former poems. We have then seen Dante continue on from there and meet a set of souls who are seeming to walk slowly around the very bottom of the mountain. One of these sheep-like souls steps forward and in surprise, surprise of all surprises, ends up being Manfred, the last Hohenstaufen king of Sicily, who no one would ever expect to end up in the good part of the afterlife. This piece from Canto 4 of Purgatorio is actually a continuation of what happened in Canto 3. We're going to want to talk about that oh, and so much more. This is one of the first of the very tough passages of Purgatorio. So gird up your loins and let's get to it. Whenever, either from delight or from pain, some sensation is understood by our faculties, the attention of our whole soul is focused on that very thing, which then seems to negate the capabilities of our other powers. And thus, this process stands against the error which believes that one soul in us is somehow kindled by another soul in us, which means that there's a point when something heard or seen holds so tightly on to the soul, then turn to it, time can go by without a person even being aware of it. That's because there is one ability that can hear time, but another ability is now maintaining the soul's attention. In this case, the latter is fixed in place and the former released. I had a true experience of just this sort of thing as I listened to that spirit and gaped in wonder. In fact, the sun had climbed a full 50 degrees and I hadn't even paid attention to it when we all came to a spot where the souls cried out in one voice, here's what you've been asking about. We're going to stop right there with the souls calling out, saying essentially that we have found the way that you can climb up the massive ascent of the cliffs that begins the mountain of purgatory. Let's talk about what exactly is going on here with souls focusing and maintaining attention and errors. What error is Dante talking about? But more important even than that is why this passage exists. And let's talk through some reasons for that. I want to talk to you about time in purgatory. And then I finally want to get back to this idea that wandering in congregation finds the way. 
the passage is without a doubt complicated because Dante is talking about something that is very far removed from us. This idea that there are multiple souls or multiple pieces of understanding inside of you. Let me first just explain how we got here. This is really a debate between Plato, which Dante barely knows. He knows just some bits of one of Plato's works and Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle have a kind of face-off on this idea. Dante may know about Plato from having read Aristotle or he knows about the Plato-Aristotle debate from having read Aquinas. Of course, we have no data trail here. We cannot determine exactly how Dante knows what he knows, but there are a couple of ways he could know about this debate. One is by reading Aristotle, and in the convivio or the banquet, he does seem to indicate that he has read Aristotle. Now, listen... It's a question of whether he actually has read Aristotle. He could be pretending to read Aristotle. Hey, (laughs) I'm, I'm willing to say that in my own dissertation, I left a couple footnotes of things that I had skimmed but hadn't even really truly read. So I'm willing to fess up to that. It could be the case with Dante, but he could know about it from Aristotle or he could know about this debate from having read Aquinas, as I said. So here's the deal. Plato sees that there are at least three different souls in each person. There's a vegetative soul. We might call this the life force. More even than life force, it's an existence force. Plants, for example, have a vegetative soul, as do animals, as do humans. Then there's a secondary soul or essence or psyche inside of you, and this is the sensitive soul. This basically uh, involves your five senses. It involves your ability to see the world, hear the world, smell the world, taste the world, but it also involves your emotions. These are all part of the sensitive soul's landscape. We would say that plants have a vegetative soul, but they don't don't have a sensitive soul, as opposed to dogs and butterflies. These have vegetative souls because they're alive and they have sensitive souls. And then there's this one thing that distinguishes humans, and that is an intellectual soul, reason, the ability to make deductive reasoning, to make syllogisms, to draw out conclusions from observed data. This, the intellectual soul, is unique to humans. Plato wants to keep the intellect untainted by the body. That is, the intellect that humans exist in has this kind of purity about it for Plato, and it is often driven aside by their sensitive souls. You see a pretty girl or a pretty boy, and suddenly your intellect goes out the window. Plato wants to say that, you know, your intellect can be driven astray by your sensitive soul and even by your vegetative soul. But yet it's of a different order. And so it could, in some perfect world, remain pure. All of this is important because contrary to what you think, Dante, Aristotle, Aquinas, and Plato all think that the soul forms the body and not the other way around. You as a modern thinker think that the body is a container 
for the soul if you believe in a soul. These thinkers and poets and writers all believe that it is the soul inhabiting the body that gives it its form and allows it to move. It is the formal cause of the body, to use very fancy logic terms. Let's turn from Plato to Aristotle and the debate. Aristotle maintains that, yes, these three powers exist, the vegetative, the sensitive, and the intellectual, but they function as a unity. They are one thing because the body acts in unity. If the soul forms the body, you kind of have to think about this for a minute. You kind of have to sit and think, how does the soul form the body? Think about how medievals don't understand nerves. They don't, classical writers like Aristotle, they don't necessarily understand nerves or motion. They certainly don't have any notion of modern physics. So what makes your arm move? Well, it's got to be something inside you. It's got to be this soul that we can't see. But Aristotle was claiming that the body acts in unity and the body is singular in its form. If you had three souls living inside of you, then there would be three different forms to your body. You, your body might take on different forms depending on which of the souls was in charge. That sounds like a really great science fiction novel, right? Some race of beings that have three different souls inside of them and their bodies change based on which of the souls are in charge. Okay, so let's let Aristotle have his bit. The souls are unitary. They're one thing. There may be three of them, but they act as a single unit. Aquinas follows Aristotle in this debate partly so he can claim that the whole person is fallen. Here's the big problem. If you follow a platonic level of reasoning and you think there are souls inside of me, then which soul in me is fallen? <laughs> which soul in me can go to hell? Which soul in me can go to heaven? Is there a way that my sensitive soul can go to hell? Let's say that I'm just a really lustful guy. That's how I for me, okay, I run after all the boys, let's pretend, and I'm, you know, just just unbelievable profligate nature. Okay, there you go. But let's say my intellect is pure, and I think about Dante, and I think about metaphysics, and I read Aristotle. And my, so what does that mean? Does that mean that somehow my sensitive soul goes to hell, but my intellectual soul would go to heaven? Or is there some way that Adam and Eve bit into the apple and their vegetative and sensitive souls fell, but their intellectual souls didn't. This is always the problem in medieval thought and in early Christian thought. They are fighting dualism. They're fighting the notion that the universe is somehow divided into good and bad. They're wanting desperately to unify it all, to claim that redemption is a single unitary event. Aquinas, of course, wants the whole person to be fallen. So he's going to follow Aristotle in this reasoning. This is the big <laughs> debate. I know it seems abstruse, but this is what Dante's worrying about. Could your body sin, but your intellect remain pure? Well, in this passage, Dante's arguing for a unitary soul, so the answer is no. Later, 
in Purgatorio. Don is going to change this answer. So we're not done with this debate. He's going to change it because he's going to get Edge right up to the notion that the soul somehow doesn't immediately fall. It's uh, We'll get there. Just trust me on this one. <laughs> he's going to complicate this matter later. But he's going to start the discussion by claiming that there is only one soul inside. Dante brings up this debate in Convivio Book 3, Chapter 2, and he comments there on the nature of the souls. But here's the problem with using Convivio to illustrate this passage and why I want to pull this passage away from the Convivio, the banquet, Dante's unfinished philosophical work. Comedy is a poem, a narrative poem. It is not deductive nonfiction reasoning. It is instead a narrative poet landscape, and the convivio is much more involved with rational deductive thought. This, therefore, means this, therefore, means this, therefore, means this. That's not the comedy, and that's not how you write narrative poetry. So using one form of writing to comment on another is a little difficult, and this is a larger question, but a question that I'm just going to drop here and I'm not going to answer. Can we presume the univocality of Dante's works? This is a really big question and one most scholars avoid. Over the course of his life, Dante writes a lot. It's a lot of it unfinished, but a lot, a fair amount of work, especially in a medieval context and especially for a guy in exile. Can you say that over, let's say, 30 years, Dante thinks the same things? Most scholars want to say yes. They want to say, oh, the convivio does this. Therefore, in comedy, Dante does that. And maybe that's valid. But people are not unitary over 30 years. They're not univocal. I didn't think the same things I think now 30 years ago. 30 years ago, I had very different political feelings than I feel now. 30 years ago, I felt very different things about the human condition than I feel now. There are all kinds of ways I have changed over 30 years. Can you presume my univocality by going back and reading, let's say, papers that I wrote on 19th century American lit in that 1980s versus now? I don't think you can. I've changed. Does Dante change? Probably. This all makes all conclusions from the new life and the convivio, it makes them all tentative. Because again, you're presuming a univocality. It comes to us, actually, to, 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 to just uh, lay into this subject just a little more from, from biblical scholarship. The problem is that Bible is written over oh, maybe, let's say, 1,500 years, if we take some early, early parts of the Old Testament or the Tanakh as really, really old vestiges sticking in there, and we come clear up to the late bits of the New Testament written, like Second Timothy and the Gospel of John, 1,500 years, maybe, uh, that we're talking about this thing is written. 
biblical scholars want to see the univocality of the Bible. They want to say, oh, in Deuteronomy it says this, so in Matthew it says this, so in the epistle to Titus it says this, and see, that's the same word being used across landscapes. Well, as you well know, one's in Hebrew and one's in Greek, but still nonetheless, can you say that over 1,500 years a work speaks univocally about anything. The bigger the stakes in the work, the more scholars and readers will presume univocality. For example, Milton's Paradise Lost is a big deal, and so scholars will claim univocality for Milton over the stretch of his works. It's the same thing with Thomas Mann. People assume that Mann speaks in a kind of univocal way, but we know he doesn't. You can't do this with Faulkner because you can actually see him change in the works. You can't do this with Virginia Woolf, but boy, do scholars try to do it with Virginia Woolf. You can presume univocality with James Joyce, but James Joyce may be one of the few people who actually tries to speak univocally across his career. So it may be intentional on his part. The whole problem here of univocality is really important. Without a doubt, though, this passage that we're reading here from Dante is a tad clumsy. If I read it to you again, you'll see how clumsy it is. And if you saw it in the medieval Florentine with all of its repeated words, and sometimes it's hard to tell the referent of the words, and sometimes it's hard to tell what is this and what is that, and Dante seems to use a metaphor of binding in one place, and yet he uses it again for something else. It's a little bit clumsy in the poetry. I'm sorry. Dante can stand it. He's a big boy. But listen to it again. Whenever either from delight or from pain some sensation is understood by our faculties, the attention of our whole soul is focused on that very thing, which then seems to negate the capabilities of our other powers. See, again, there can't be multiple souls in you because sometimes you pay attention to something and then you're not paying attention to other things. So there can't be multiple things inside of you because you could pay attention to more than one thing at once. <laughs> Dante never met my husband who can do about 50 things at once. I can do one thing at once. So, okay, Dante must be like me. And thus, the passage goes on, this process stands against the error which believes that one soul in us is somehow kindled by another soul in us. No, 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 they don't. There aren't this battle of the souls in which the sensitive soul is kindling the intellect, which means that there's a point when something heard or seen holds so tightly onto the soul, then turned to it. Time can go by without a person even being aware of it. Here's the deal. I was listening to Manfred. I wasn't paying any attention to time. That must mean that there's only one soul inside of me because time is passing. If there was more than one soul in me, I would have noticed that all this time has gone by. That's because there is one ability that can hear time. We'll come back to that. Why is it hear time? That can hear time, but another ability is now maintaining the soul's attention. In this case, the latter is fixed in place and the former released. Okay, sure. There may be multiple kinds of souls in you, vegetative, sensitive, and intellectual, but they really form a single unit. And thus he says, I had a true experience of just this sort of thing as I listened to that spirit, Manfred, and gaped in wonder. Now let's talk about why this sits as the opening of Canto 4. 
Sorry, that was a big, long explanation piece of this podcast, but this is our first scientific, and I'm putting those words in air quotes, scientific disquisition in Purgatorio, scientific as Dante would understand the term, not as we understand it. What's the problem here? Okay, first off, this is not plot. This is instead Dante stepping out and giving us a, what he would call, a scientific theological understanding of the soul. This is one of the things that we are going to have to come to terms with in Purgatorio and then in Paradiso. Plot is not just action. It is also the development of the mind. And this is one of the first times in which Dante is trying to school our minds. Now, you can stop and say, wait a minute. How can you school me off an imagined conversation, a created, a fabricated conversation with Manfred? Uh, That's the rhetoric of comedy. That's that bit that comedy raises the very questions it wants me to ask. And it doesn't want me to ask the questions about its ability to raise those questions. Sorry, that was a little complicated, but there you go. Purgatorio, to go back to our old schema, is about the correction of the intellect. If Inferno is about the correction of the will, then Purgatorio is about the perfection of the will and the correction of of the intellect. And here we begin the process of correcting our intellects so that we think rightly. What is interesting is that the pilgrim's intellect will be corrected over the course of Purgatorio, but in the first instance out of the gate in Canto 4, the poet Dante corrects the reader's intellect. In other words, This runs a little counter to the plot. The plot ahead of us is that the pilgrim's intellect, the pilgrim Dante's intellect, is corrected. But the first instance is my, the reader's intellect, which means that when the pilgrim's intellect is corrected ahead of us, my intellect is being corrected too. And the poet has set it up so that I understand that the text can operate as the correction of my intellect. And notice the plotting here. Dante draws a lesson in Canto 4 that is different from the lesson that Manfred draws in Canto 3. Now, this is what I really want to talk about for just a second. We come to the end of Canto 3 and Manfred has his big speech. And the big lesson we learn from Manfred's speech is that A, Anybody can be saved even if they repent at the last minute. And B, the prayers of the living help the dead in purgatory. Fair enough. But then we turn out of that and we get a secondary conclusion about the unity of the soul, which starts Canto 4, which means that Dante is smart enough to let Manfred have center stage throughout his soliloquy all the way to the back of Canto 3 without any interruption. And then we turn in Canto 4 to a secondary conclusion, which means that we are surprised. This is the rhetoric of all of purgatory. When you reach the end of Manfred, you thought that the conclusion to be drawn from Manfred was, again, that anybody can be saved, even at the last second, and that the living can pray for the dead. Then you come into Canto 4 and you find out, no, that's not the lesson. The lesson is that the soul is a single unity. And you kind of step back and think, what, wait, wait, what's the real lesson to be gained from Manfred's speech? 
Dante is working very hard to surprise you. Surprise is the very nature of purgatory. Cato, <laughs> that angel in the boat, Casella, here, Manfred himself, standing there, Manfred, the libertine, standing in purgatory. And then, out of Manfred's speech, this, the unity of the soul. Wait, surprise. It's always this kind of misdirection, this surprise. This is going to happen to us over and over again over the course of Purgatorio. Why? Because surprise is the beginning of wonder. If you can be surprised, then you can kind of crack your mind open because wonder is that crack, that place in which you stop thinking what you've been thinking and suddenly think something new. This passage is a prime example of it. It's so fabulous. I love it because, again, Manfred is so compelling. He's so noble. He's so gorgeous. Remember we told how beautiful he is. He's all gashed up. It's shocking that he's there. He's shocking on every single level. And then we come out of it and we get a final shock. Oh, the real lesson here is that the pilgrim wasn't paying attention to time and that Manfred was talking and time was passing and the pilgrim didn't know it, which means there's only one soul inside of you. You may have various pieces, but you're just a unity inside. And sometimes your attention just takes over and you can only notice one thing at a time. That surprise is the very nature of Purgatorio and why I love the second canticle of comedy so very much. Let's talk about time because the passage is so centered on the temporal experience. I mean, even though it's all about the unity of the soul, it is that the sun had climbed a full 50 degrees. Uh, Let me explain that for just a minute. In medieval calculations of degrees and even somewhat modern calculations, the sun rises about 15 degrees per hour. So if the sun has risen a full 50 degrees, it's three hours and about 20 minutes since dawn. In other words, it is 9.30 in the morning, about. It's about halfway between dawn and noon. In Dante's terminology, it's near terse. The bells rung halfway between dawn and noon, or between, to use Dante's terminology from church bell ringing, between prime and sext. Between those two is terse, and we're at about that moment. And what I just told you is why it says, because there is one ability that can hear time. For Dante, time is the ringing of bells, not his cell phone. (laughs) I love the idea of the pilgrim with a cell phone in the afterlife. It's the bells. Believe it or not, this bit of the one ability to hear time, the use of the word hear in this case, this bugged commentators for centuries. Many commentators claimed that this was clumsy, that Dante was using a word just for the sake of the rhyme here, the verb here falls at the end of the line. Dante was just throwing a verb in there, but it doesn't really fit because how can you hear time? This just bugged everybody to death. They thought it was a mistake on Dante's part or maybe a manuscript corruption. But in 1973, it's not very long ago, in 1973, Singleton proposed the solution that to Dante time is audible because it 
it's church bells. It's the ringing of matins and prime and terse and sext and all throughout the day. To Dante, time is an auditory experience. Well, just think about that for a minute. Time is an auditory experience. Time is going to become very important in purgatory, and a lot of critics overstate this. We did have temporal markers in Inferno. Virgil did talk about where the constellations were and how they had to move on because the fish were rising or the fish were setting or whatever. I mean, Virgil did make temporal markers in Inferno, and we questioned how would Virgil know where the constellations are in a cave in the ground, but okay, fine enough. But there are many, many, many more of them in Purgatorio because purgatory is a terrestrial event. And one of the ways that Dante will stress for us that purgatory is a terrestrial event is the passage of time. The pilgrim is going to sleep on the mountain. The sun is going to rise and set more than once on the mountain. So because of all of that, time plays a very key role here because, again, It is directing us that this is a kind of human experience in purgatory. Now, let me just remind you, and this is really important to remember, for Dante, time is a unitary force, just like the soul. It's a unitary, universal force. Dante doesn't know Einstein. He doesn't know the general or specific theories of relativity. He doesn't understand quantum mechanics. All of that is beyond his understanding of how time operates. Time is a universal, linear, unitary experience. In other words, time is passing on Mars exactly the same way it passes on Earth. It's passing up in the stars exactly the way it's passing on Earth. Time is a unitary, universal experience. Just keep that in mind and just keep in mind that for Dante, time is an auditory sensation, which means, if we go back to our souls, that time is first an experience of the sensitive soul, hearing, and then an intellectual deduction based on the number of bells you hear. One more final point, the soul's wandering around. And I hadn't paid attention to time, Dante says at the end of the passage, when we all came to a spot where the souls cried out in one voice. Notice they're unitary, too. He's driving this home. <laughs> that, that there is a unity going on here, a temporal unity, a soul unity, and now these souls speak in one voice. Here's what you've been asking about. The wandering congregation finds the way. This is so crucial to understanding what's going on here. Now, in the last episode of this podcast, we talked a lot about how excommunication is not the final answer. And so the ability to keep you out of heaven is not in the church's hands. But we do know that the church's excommunication has some power. This is where Dante is much more nuanced than perhaps we would want him to be. I did present it that, you know, well, look, he's dissing the church's power. But the church does have some power because if you get excommunicated, you got to spend 30 times the amount of time here at the bottom of purgatory that you spent in excommunication, in, as the last passage said, in rebellion. So the church does have some power. It may not have ultimate power, but some power. Still and nonetheless, the individual will, Manfred, choosing 
at the end and the individual intellect, Dante, in this passage about the unity of souls, those individuals, the individual will and the individual intellect do hold some final agency. And you can just see the dawning of the modern age, just barely. But remember, the church does have power because you got to spend 30-fold the amount of time here on the bottom. Notice unity of time, the assumption that you were excommunicated for three years, so you've got to spend 90 years down here. Notice the unitary notion of time, the universal unitary notion of time. So it's not that the church has no power. Don't go out there. It's that the church has some power. It just may not have final agency, which is illustrated by both Manfred's uh, redemption, Manfred's confession and repentance at the very end, and Dante the poet's ability to refute errors about the nature of the soul. Complicated passage, admittedly difficult. One of the first times we hit one of these big, bad speed bumps in Purgatorio, I hope that you now understand part of why we're hitting them. A, the correction of the intellect, and B, there are narrative sequences from which Dante the Poet will draw other conclusions that surprise us, that take us by shock. What we thought we were thinking is suddenly not the final answer to what we are seeing in the narrative. Let's read this passage one more time, lines 1 through 18 of Canto 4 of Purgatorio. Whenever, either from delight or from pain, some sensation is understood by our faculties, the attention of our whole soul is focused on that very thing, which then seems to negate the capabilities of our other powers. And thus, this process stands against the error which believes that one soul in us is somehow kindled by another soul in us, which means that there's a point when something heard or seen holds so tightly onto the soul then turn to it, time can go by without a person even being aware of it. That's because there is one ability that can hear time, but another ability is now maintaining the soul's attention. In this case, the latter is fixed in place and the former released. I had a true experience of just this sort of thing as I listened to that spirit and gaped in wonder. In fact, the sun had climbed a full 50 degrees and I hadn't even paid attention to it. When we all came to a spot where the souls cried out in one voice, Here's what you've been asking about. We start the climb in the next episode of Walking with Dante. Virgil and Dante must go up and leave Manfred and the others behind. We want to talk about exactly how this ascent happens in the next episode of this podcast. So to get there, you've got to subscribe. Please rate this podcast. Write a comment, if you will. That would really help with the analytics. I very much appreciate that. Thanks again. As I always say, for being on the walk with me, I really appreciate it. This is so much fun for me, and it is... I hope so much fun for you, too, to be in a constant state of surprise at the poet's ways to send us off in misdirections, even from Canto 1 to Canto 2 of Inferno, to send us off in misdirections that we may never have anticipated when we were just gliding along with the plot. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.